That's all you got, huh? <laughs> That's all I got. I don't, I don't remember how the rest of it goes. That's fair enough. Well, uh, no other way to start it off than that. That's the recently back to the United States, Yen Shippel. Yes, and that right there is Mr. Steve Jones. And today on Concert Pipeline, we have two bands for you. Not when one is just isn't enough, we're going to bring you two. How about that? That's one, two. That, that's one, two, for full. I don't know. <laughs> okay, that was bad. That's uh, twice the number of one. Musical goodness, exactly. And so let's let's talk about who we have on the program. But we when we'll get it, we'll get into it a little deeper in just a little bit. But we have a band uh, called Max Sabbath on the program. We actually talked to uh, Max Sabbath's manager and uh, got to hear about some of the antics of their performance. We'll get into that here in just a little bit. Um, also have an interview with James Montgomery. Uh, so uh, we'll get to that as well. Lots of great stuff. First, though, like I mentioned, Jens, you recently arrived back in the United States after many weeks abroad. I did. Yeah, yeah. It's it's really good to be back. It's kind of weird to be back, but it's good to be back. Um, it's nice to you know sleep in a real bed. Uh-huh. <laughs> That's always you know a big plus from coming home. What were you um, sleeping in, Jens? Uh, I will. I was sleeping all over the place um, in hotels, at uh, Airbnbs mostly. Um, so you know, some of the beds were okay, and some of them, you know, really were not. Um, I think one was probably we had one little uh, Airbnb that was um, the size of a large closet. Um, where everything, you know, was from Ikea, and yeah. <laughs> it was really cute, but very, very uncomfortable, uh, <laughs> but well-located, centrally located. Yeah, well, let's let's talk about where you went for, uh, where, did, where did you go, Jens? Yeah, well, um, went to a couple of countries, uh, let's, I'll talk about Greece today, um, went to Greece. So, uh, the idea behind the vacation was that, um... I have a friend who uh, was getting married, and she is from the Ukraine, and she's getting married to this guy in Croatia who's from Croatia. So the idea was to go to the wedding, um, but since Greece is sort of on the way, just make a quick stop there. So, um, yeah, I was in Greece for a little over a week, uh, specifically in uh, on two of the islands outside of the mainland and then uh, Athens. So... Uh, Mykonos was one of the islands, and Santorini uh, was the other one. Uh, for those of you that have ever watched um, movies like Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants, or what, what's that called? Sisterhood of the Traveling yeah, yeah, Pants, that's, right? That's, that's it, uh. Yeah, that was filmed there. Um, so if you get a, if you get a, you know, kind of a, a memory of those shots, it's. I have no um, memory of those shots nor that movie as I've never seen it. So you've never seen it. Okay, so think of like igloo houses on cliffs, all painted white. Uh, with kind of the spiritual buildings all over the place with blue roofs. So it's all white and, and blue um, for the churches and stuff. So it's, it's really cool. It's really, really cool. Very cliffy. Very, it looks a lot like California, actually. If you take all the people and buildings away, it looks a lot like California. So when I got off the plane, I was almost like, uh, okay, it's, this place still looks like California. Wow, okay. <laughs> so uh, so you had fun in, in Greece. Tell us a little bit more about what uh, what you did, what the exciting parts were, what uh, you've never been there before. 
No, never been there before. And there were two things um, that I was really curious about um, when flying to uh, Greece. You know, one is that they've been having, um, uh, you know, a huge uh, financial crisis, right? And the country has been bailed out, I think, twice now. And um, I was wondering what kind of impact that would have, you know, as just somebody coming in and being a tourist. And the second of that was, the uh, second thing I was wondering about was the whole refugee thing. Um, all these people leaving Syria in that area. Um, a lot of them went to Greece or through Greece or something. So I was curious to see what that was like. So um, what's interesting, Steve, is, uh, you know, sort of as a, as a tourist, just walking around and, you know, doing touristy things in Athens, um, uh, in terms of the like the economic crisis, uh, you don't really see much of it except in like the like the graffiti. It's crazy. There is graffiti everywhere in Athens. Oh, no. Everywhere. I mean, you're in one of the nicest neighborhoods, and there's graffiti all over the place. And you think that you're about to get mugged or something. You know, it looks pretty bad. And there are other. You know, you hear people around the tourists talking about, oh gosh, are we in a good neighborhood or? Oh boy, you know, I don't know if I feel safe here. You know, are you sure we're in the right street? You know, that kind of thing. I mean, was, was that your wife everywhere. or was that? No, no. Well, yeah, my wife did ask that. <laughs> but we were talking to other people um, that, you know, had the same kind of concerns. Uh, so, you know, I think a lot of the, the youth maybe took out their anger um, for, you know, no jobs and stuff like that uh, and just spent their savings on spray paint. <laughs> and kind of uh, painted the city. Um, you know, so there's stuff like that. But what, what I really noticed, Steve, was like this, the stuff that kind of more impacts the tourists. Like if you're on your feet all day um, looking at the sites and going from train station to museum to, you know, the Acropolis or whatever, mm-hmm. um, every now and then you're like, okay, you know, you got to pee, so you go find a public bathroom. Dude, it's the weirdest thing I've seen. It's like, it's like, Somebody came into Greece and stole all the toilet seats. Ooh, where did they take them? I don't know. I don't know. It's like somebody had an ingenious idea. You know, we don't have any more money left. Why don't we just go steal all the toilet seats and export them, you know, to try to bail us out of this economical crisis? I sense the plot of a blockbuster movie on our hands. Yes, this is a huge blockbuster movie. So at first, I thought it was just a coincidence, you know? I'm like, oh, i got to pee. And normally, as a guy, you go, you want to lift the toilet seat up, right? But there's no toilet seat. So you're like, okay, well, that's kind of weird. So we have, then, it, we have it easier than the women in Greece, then, is what you're saying? Yeah, I guess. I guess. I mean, I didn't ask women if their toilet seats were missing maybe i should have maybe it was just a guy thing Uh (laughs) but i mean from the women i've talked to they usually kind of squat anyway when they use public bathrooms so i don't know if a toilet seat really makes much of a difference for women might be wrong but that's what i heard yeah were they clean bathrooms and where the toilet seats were missing like Uh, yes and no yes uh, and no yes and no so undiscriminatory okay go ahead yeah they're about as clean as you can get uh, you know, with some exceptions. So, um, so, so anyway, for that example, I thought it was sort of a coincidence. So then, you know, a couple of days pass, and then I'm like, ooh, trying to find another, you know, bathroom. So I find another one, and same thing, no toilet seat. It's like, okay, that's weird. Maybe this is kind of a trend thing. So it became a little bit humorous. And then there was another one where um, there was no toilet seat, and the entire bathroom was flooded. Like the plumbing, not for the toilets, but the, just the regular plumbing wasn't working like there was a uh um 
a drain underneath where all the sinks are, you know, and that was, wasn't draining. So there was like water, wasn't gross water, just regular water coming out. So you were literally had to walk through a little bit of a lake just to wash your hands or, you know, to go find a toilet that didn't have a toilet seat. Yeah. (laughs) So, so there's that kind of thing happening. Um, and then the very last toilet, uh, that I went to, didn't even have a toilet. It was just like a hole in the ground. Like you would have in Japan or or France or something, you know. And it's like, uh, okay, that's kind of nasty. Yeah, yeah. Nasty. So, so you're painting this great picture for your trip, by the way. It's of how <laughs> yeah. how romantic and lovely it was. I know exactly. So I'm like, hmm, you know, there's there's probably something going on here. Either somebody made a ton of money exporting all the toilet seats, or um, there's just not enough money for businesses to replace broken stuff, like toilets or plumbing so um you know that's kind of my experience in terms of the economic crisis and so this was the highlight of your trip to greece as the toilets with with no toilet seats it was the unexpected yeah it was the unexpected highlight i guess yeah i could talk about the acropolis and how wonderful that was but whatever this is the the concert pipeline here this is what you're (laughs) not going to find in the tourist books exactly this is Word of mouth, I mean, just, you know, really good essential information about, uh, you know, a trip to Greece. If you're planning on going to Greece, bring your own toilet seat. It is a must, you know. It's not just about the toothbrush or the toothpaste or the soap or whatever. Bring your own toilet seat and you'll be fine. You'll be a happy camper and you'll be able to, you know, take that focus away from from squatting. You'll be... Exactly. Focus on more pressing matters. Exactly. So you want to be prepared to to squat and bring your own toilet seat um, if you'd rather not do that. And um, maybe even wear like river shoes, you know, so your feet don't get wet if you need to walk around in a little river. Yeah. Well, well, that was a a great story. I mean, uh, I really feel like I learned a lot about your vacation there. And uh, (laughs) and I I can't wait for for next week's story. (laughs) Yeah. Next week's story is just as good. Oh, I'm on the edge of my seat. We'll talk about Croatia next week. Oh, you, yeah. you don't need a and toilet then, seat for Croatia. Spoiler. Right. Yeah. So, um, and then the whole uh, refugee thing, you know, I didn't really experience that at all, uh, except maybe once. Um, uh, let's see. We went outside of um, Athens a few hours to go take a look at these just amazing monasteries that are literally sitting on these pillars of rock that just come out of the ground. And they're olive trees everywhere. And um, and I saw this uh, this old kind of half destroyed truck, like it had just come out of the Syrian War or something, with a whole bunch of people just packed in the back of it. So I'm like, hmm, I wonder if those are refugees or if those are um, you know just Mexican workers that are working in the olive fields. Easy to mix those up. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Easy to mix those up. Well, obviously not Mexican, but whatever you know. Whatever their labor sources. Are. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, uh, in a nutshell, Greece was awesome. Greece was awesome. Bring a toilet seat. Greece was awesome. Bring a toilet seat. You know what you don't need a toilet seat for? Max Sabbath. That's true. Yeah. Do not need a toilet seat for Max Sabbath at all. Um, interesting band. Interesting band. You know, I wasn't that familiar with Max Sabbath. Um, and they kind of reminded me of a band version of Weird Al Yankovic. That's a, am I kind of on the money with that, or am I way off? It's an interesting way to put it. Uh, yeah, I mean, they're you know I don't know what to how to describe them per se. Uh, I mean, I don't want to use the term gimmicky or anything like that, but 
I mean, it, unique. It's a unique experience, uh, I guess would be a, a way to put it, because who doesn't love Black Sabbath, right? You, you got to love Black Sabbath. And they're uh, in the band, and we'll, we'll talk to the manager, manager, my God, here in just a, uh, a minute. But, um, but the band uh, started out kind of playing shows on, um, like in basements of restaurants sort of thing, underground stuff, probably late at night, uh, and kind of his... Uh, grown into this thing where they're able to tour and play big shows and uh, and play they they played outside lands before Elton John and Download Festival in the UK um, and, and other things like that and and all this kind of they gained a lot of exposure after Black Sabbath kind of tweeted out their uh, the link to their video for Frying Pan so uh, which uh, the live video they haven't put out an album or anything yet we'll we'll talk to Mike and, and hear a little bit about that in just a second but. Um, I, I guess you can just say quite an uh, experience. The lead singer, uh, Ronald Osborne, uh, he uh, he's a character. Is he the guy that dressed up as Ronald McDonald? Uh, we don't we don't name names. Um, oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I yes. won't name names. I'm no. just gonna say I watched one of their videos on YouTube, and the uh, first impression I had was, "Wow, this video got a million plus hits." Yes, yes, and they. Um, very popular definitely sounds like black sabbath and um i don't know my fast food chains very well but it seems like we have an eclectic presentation of like a multifaceted convention of you know hamburglers and people exactly right so it's a it's a creative way of expressing their uh fandom for black sabbath as well as uh disdain over the fast food industry so that's kind of a good way to look at it. And, there we go. Um, and with that, I think we should get into it a little bit. We're going to um, start out by playing um, a song from uh, Max Sabbath's set at the, at the show. I mean, again, lots of antics. They were cooking up uh, food. Uh, there was, I think, squirting of ketchup and mustard. And uh, just, I mean, really, per- I mean, performance art is a way of looking at it as well. The uh, Ronald Osborne took off uh, uh, his... Uh, underwear on a stage. Um, was he wearing them inside or outside the pants? They're they're inside the pants. <laughs> they're inside the pants. How did he do that? You know, I didn't ask him. <laughs> so, uh, were they yeah. squirting ketchup and mustard into the crowd or just on stage? Or I, I think into I think they did it into the crowd a little bit if I remember right. So um, nice. Yeah. Um, and so we're, we're going to start off with the uh, the song that they opened the the show with, and uh, and by the way, never a better time to say check out Concert Pipeline's Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash Concert Pipeline Pod, because there's going to be video of um, uh, of this song uh, on the on the Concert Pipeline Facebook page, and it's mm-hmm. an, it's some it's a very visual artist, so uh, definitely check that out. This uh, this first song is going to be more ribs by Max Sabbath, and then we'll get into the interview with Mike Odd, the band's manager. Sounds good.
Hey, Mike Odd, how are you doing? Pretty good, what's happening? Not much, this is Steve Jones from Concert Pipeline, uh, here to talk to you about Max Sabbath. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, how's your day going so far? Good, good, we just uh, pulled into uh, the Sacramento show here. Awesome, yeah. On tour, yeah. Yeah, I'm coming to the show tonight, and I've never seen Max Sabbath, so for those of us who haven't gotten to experience. Obviously, I've seen the videos online and everything, and uh, it looks like, I mean, really an, a unique experience. Can you tell us a little bit about what we're uh, going to be in, uh, seeing tonight? 
Oh boy. <laughs> start at the beginning or <laughs> we can start in present and work our way back maybe a little bit and bounce bounce around. Whatever whatever you're comfortable with. I wanna I wanna know kind of okay, your your involvement, your uh, Max Sabbath's manager and I know uh Correct. Yeah, and, and tell us a little bit about. Okay, we'll, we'll start at the beginning. Where? Yeah, uh, tell us. No, a, no, it's up to you. Whatever you want. <laughs> <laughs> okay, t- tell tell us the experience of of a Max Sabbath show. What is uh, uh what is the audience? Uh, I don't, I don't like to do spoiler alerts uh, or anything. No. But I mean, uh, basically, you have this uh. Man, this uh, this uh, crazy clown uh, Ronald Osborne uh, singing for this uh, uh, Black Sabbath themed uh, cheeseburger band, and you got uh, Grimalis on on bass, this, this giant uh, purple fuzzy thing that's just amazing, and uh, and and then you got the cat burglar on drums, who is uh, impossible to describe on the phone. <laughs> Slayer McCheese. <laughs> And uh, Slayer McCheese, uh, who, you know, is this giant uh, cheeseburger-headed, uh, you know, cheese che- uh, cheese shredder, as 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 it were, and 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 uh, and and it's just this incredible, you know, stage show, and 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 just it's just it's much more of a, it's just an incredible live experience with, um, uh, you know, props and. And uh, stage, it's like an arena-sized stage show, you know, smashed into a, a little club stage, you know. And uh, there's, you know, laser-eyed skulls and uh, uh, inflatable hamburgers bouncing around on the audience, and Ronald's pulling crazy things out of his pants and doing birthday party magic. It's it's uh it's all around this you know Black Sabbath setting and, and you know really ominous uh you know tones and stuff. It's uh it's 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 really really yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's really it, hard to put into words. Right. I mean, it's not like anything that anybody's ever seen before. It's not and and, and it's not a conventional band. And, it's, and every time we pull into uh thing and they don't understand what we're doing and they're very confused and 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 then and then by the time we're done they're you know there's this complete flip-flop of attitude you know because all of a sudden they get it and and it's you know it's, they're elated you know so yeah. uh it's a it's a, it's a struggle every day and it's so rewarding every night you know so yeah something and and you say you say they get it. So do, is everyone kind of bought in on the joke, or are there are there groups that really don't get it now? Are, are like McDonald's? Joke? Or, what joke? Not I guess joke isn't the best word, but the the the, parody, the parody of it, the fun the funness of of it. I mean, is I I know the message is kind of anti. Uh, fast food and co- the corporate fast food industry, kind of the lack of nutritional value and all that. So yeah, yeah, that's the funny thing about it is sometimes it's misunderstood because uh, you know the, it, you would just assume that the the Godfathers of uh, drive-through metal uh, would uh, would uh, condone such a lifestyle, but they do not. They're, they're, they're uh, anti. Uh, uh, drive-through lifestyle, you know. So, um, so, so you'll hear him singing a lot about Monsanto and GMOs and comments about, you know, all all, all kinds of things. And, and the, the lyrics are actually 
you know, a bit more heavy and, and, and full of a lot more serious content yeah. than the show, because the show is just super fun, and you're, you know, let's face it, you're watching a clown, you know? Yeah. So, um... <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so it kind of has like these two these two different dynamics that don't necessarily uh, that you wouldn't necessarily mix in your in your uh, you know thought process process of how things work, but somehow it all blends together wonderfully and just seems to really work. And um, everybody seems pretty hungry for it right now, so things are well. So. Uh, speaking of uh, Black Sabbath, uh, they're retiring this year. Is there uh, any like how does the band feel about that? Do they? I mean, they're obviously going to continue on past Black Sabbath's retirement, right? Well, yeah. I mean, Black Sabbath, um, in more ways than one, is a is a, is is a huge, huge reason why this this band's as successful as 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 as, as they are. I mean, it. Once, I mean, obviously because they play Black Sabbath music, but the real turning point in the band was when Black Sabbath, uh, on uh, uh, on New Year's Day, uh, January first of 2015, uh, Black Sabbath posted the uh, frying pan. Frying pan is the parody of Iron Man. Yeah. Uh, video, live video from YouTube on their. Uh, on their Facebook and on their Twitter. And that's when it just completely blew up when Black Sabbath showed their support and turned everybody onto it. And that's when, and now it's at over a million hits on YouTube. So, uh, yeah, the, the, the end, the tour, the end is, yeah, that's, 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 it's a hard one to swallow, but, um, but yeah, for Max Sabbath, it's, it's definitely, the beginning so we'll see what we can do yeah and and, speak, <laughs> and, and, and speaking of the beginning uh, my understanding is that Ronald Osborne I guess called you up and you're you're the lead singer in Rosemary's Billy Goat and you had a meeting and they asked you to be their uh, their manager tell us a little bit about how that came about uh, yeah I you know I ran this like you know freak museum in uh, in East Hollywood and you know that's that's the kind of thing where when you're that kind of guy and you ch you're constantly chasing down weirdness and oddities and then it starts chasing you down a guy calls you up and tells you to come out to his his uh, you know little wooden shack and look at his two-headed stuffed aardvark or whatever it is you know and, and, and so that's just kind of escalates and starts chasing you down more and more so I, I guess I wasn't too surprised to get this anonymous phone call that said and I should go down to this burger place in Chatsworth, California, and something was going to happen to change my life. Yeah. And although I didn't believe it was going to change my life, and it did, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that was, that was quite an experience. I, you know, sitting in that place in the booth and having this, this just abomination of a clown just... Just roll in there and just all eyes on him, you know. Yeah. Just viewing these ridiculous concepts all over everybody's lunch, you know. Not very long before we got booted out of there, and you know he's telling me that they, that he's time traveled here from the 1970s to save us all from the current state of sustenance, and we need to get back to the time when food and music was real in the 1970s, and he's gonna, you know. 
and I just like thought I was on like a hidden camera show or something. I was like, you're getting thrown out of there. And then next thing I know, he invited me to come back in the middle of the night at like three in the morning, this like secret little turnkey meeting was going on. And like, I go down to the basement and watch these black Sabbath band of these fast food mascots playing black Sabbath songs, screaming about, you know, uh, <laughs> Screaming about uh, synthetic food dyes and stuff like, ah, it was one of the weirdest things that ever happened to me in my life. And I thought, uh, you know, yeah. although it spoke to me as the greatest thing, I didn't, I, I didn't think that I would be able to figure out how to get it, get it to have this much success. And yeah, since since then we, we um, you know, played at a festival in San Francisco in Gold Gate Park right before uh, Elton John yeah, uh, at the Outside Lands Festival. Went to, and toured England and played a festival called Download with Kiss and Motley Crue and Slipknot and Jesus uh, Priest, Marilyn Manson. It's like, you know what I mean? It's, I just, yeah. <laughs> so I'm just blown away, you know, at, at, the, at the speed of this thing. It truly is, you know, like fast. Yeah, because because the band the, the band formed about two years ago, and already I mean you're you're doing these big things. You're getting recognition from Black Sabbath. You're playing the D Download Festival overseas and other other shows kind of overseas. It's kind of you know it, it's, three national tours this year. That's three huge. Three national tours. Already did one, and then about to do two more. So yeah, yeah. And uh, and are there areas where the uh, that you get kind of different responses from from the crowd? Like, I mean, areas where the fans are more engaged or uh, kind of really really uh, get you guys pumped? Well, yeah. I mean, you know, ba I guess basically what you'd think. Like the bigger cities have bigger shows, and so you know, somewhat have bigger reactions. You know, I mean. Uh, but, uh, you know, other than that, uh, I haven't, uh, I haven't seen any negative reactions. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, so, so tell me a, a little bit more about, um, about kind of the, uh, the, the, the band and and what they have planned going forward is there ever kind of an uh an an idea to get in the studio and make an uh, an album or is this kind of just still at the word of mouth uh and get out there and, and See, that's when that's when uh, that's when like conversations becomes complicated because i have plans and he has plans but they're never the same plans and sometimes they don't work and I so you know and so I never really know what's going to happen sometimes I think he has plans that aren't what they are yeah <laughs> so um yeah it figuring out how to get this band in a studio and then do some sort of a release has been a very very complicated uh Thing with somebody who doesn't acknowledge any technology past the 1970s. So um, that's been difficult, and I'm working on it. But the other problem is you're just, just on the road all the time. There's like, no, I mean, it is a live entity. It, it is. that more than it is anything. It is something you have to see to understand. So I think focusing on that for now is, you know, is, is a fair 
decision, um, but I, I am trying because there is pressure to do some sort of release, I guess, when you're in the music business. <laughs> you know, it's a, it's a piece of the equation, but, you know, you, you guys are a unique experience as well. I don't know, maybe a live album's the way to go, right? Like, <laughs> I, I, you know, I don't know. It's like, because in a way, although it's as successful as it is in the music business, it just doesn't seem like the music business exactly. So, yeah. So yeah, I, I don't know if it translates to a, a record or not, but I guess time will, will, will tell. Yeah. Very cool. Well, well, Mike, thank you for taking the, the time today. I'm really looking forward to uh, the set tonight and really seeing all the antics that, that come of that. I mean, it, I've been aware of the, the band for a, a little bit, and so now getting the opportunity to see them in in the in all their glory <laughs> will be quite, yeah, an, quite an experience. Yeah, exciting. Yep. Yeah, we'll see you tonight at, uh, at, uh, at, the, at the boardwalk in, uh, in Orangeville here. Yeah, for sure. We'll have a uh, we'll see you tonight, Mike. Have a, a great rest of the the tour as well, and the other tours that you have uh, going forward. Okay. You too. All right, you take care. All right, you too. Bye. All right. Bye. That was the interview with Max Sabbath on Concert Pipeline, and uh, <laughs> dramatic <laughs> effect there. That was dramatic. You know, I was also going to say, um, you know, different ways to tune in to Concert Pipeline. You'd mentioned uh, Facebook. What are some others, Steve? You know, you can follow Concert Pipeline on Twitter, at Concert Pipeline. Uh, Instagram, same thing. Uh, what's the other one? Periscope. Uh, some, Periscope. Sometimes we shoot video from the, the band set. Not always. It depends on the show uh, if, if we do that. But the only way to know is to follow us on Periscope. Yeah, uh, that's pipeline. right. And so that's it. And, and subscribe to the podcast. Yes, do it right now. Go back, go to, go to iTunes, hit subscribe, and also tell five friends to, to subscribe. Make it them. is a must. It is a must here. Download that stuff. Listen to it on your commutes or wherever you can. Exactly. Uh, we're going to move forward because we have a really awesome interview. I'm going to tell you, Jens, we have some big interviews coming up here on Concert Pipeline. Um, this The past couple of days, I've been interviewing a lot of people who are really influential in, in the blues community and uh, and who have been around for a long time and heard some really great stories uh, from uh, from that side of the, the 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 world, I guess you can say the music world, and uh, and and it was really awesome. We have some great interviews coming up in the coming weeks, and and this is going to be the the first of those. Um, typically, we don't do a lot of phone interviews. At least I try not to. I know we have two actually on this podcast: Max Sabbath's manager and um, James Montgomery. But I I typically like uh, we like to go out to concerts, uh, interview the bands at the show, and uh, and bring some of the, the concert to the the podcast as well. But these bands were really really great, and I I, uh, I couldn't say no to to interviewing them. So they they all kind of are tied in in uh, different ways and kind of intersect each other at, at different points. So it'll be fun to to bring them through. Um, and like I said, James Montgomery is the, the first of these that we're, we're going to be talking to. Um, had a great conversation with James. Um, I think we just need to get into it. What do you think? Let's do it. Hop right in. Hello. Hey, James. How's it going? Steve Jones from Concert Pipeline. Oh, good. Hey, uh, so here with James Montgomery. Um, so, uh, James, want to talk to you a little bit about your career in music and some of the experiences that you've had, um, uh, your albums, that sort of thing. So, um, 
let's let's go way back. Let's start uh, early on if we can, and t- talk to me about uh, the first time you picked up the harmonica. Do you even remember uh, doing it, and kind of how has that impacted? Yeah, you know, I remember specifically. I, I had a radio show for about five years before I joined the Johnny Winter Band, and then once I joined his band, I couldn't do my show anymore. But, but uh, I, I interviewed over 110 blues musicians, and every single one of them, almost except for four remembers a moment. I'm not sure that's true in rock and roll. You know, I think rock and roll guys, well, I wanted to play guitar, I wanted to get girls, I wanted to wear beetle boots, whatever it is. But every blues musician has a moment, and I still remember mine vividly. The first time I ever saw a guy play blues harmonica live, and it just struck this chord. It was like, you know, wow, look at that, you know? And um, and, and that guy and I are still playing together. He was with the Uptown Horns, and I just put it on my last record, so... So, um, you know, Bonnie Raitt was that sitting around the campfire at camp and, and a guy played a blues song on the guitar and it struck her. So I, I think all blues musicians seem to remember the moment that they that, um, that, that they got struck. And then he gave me a harmonica that night. And, when, and, and about six months later, I was the front man for that band. <laughs> you know, so so uh, I, I, I remember it vividly. You know, so I was probably about 15 or 16 years old. Wow. Okay. And and you mentioned Bonnie Raitt. I know, uh, kind of living in Boston and growing up there, you you kind of built relationships with Bonnie Raitt and kind of interacted with Steven Tyler, Van Morrison, that sort of thing. Can you tell me a little bit about those experiences? Yeah. You know, it's funny because there was a, a crowd of us, and we all would hang out after our after our little shows at like Jack's and Jonathan Swift's and all these places in Cambridge and, and some in Boston. And it was Bonnie Raitt, me, Livingston Taylor, John Busetter, uh, Spider John Kerner, sometimes Peter Wolf, and uh, Jonathan Richmond, and, and and Van was there, but just for a little bit. Van, Van was only in Cambridge for a, a year or so, but but it was funny because everyone and Van was Van had already had a career by the time he, when he was living in Cambridge. But all of us were just getting started, and it's funny because everyone in that little group went on to, uh, we all went on to have uh, careers in music and, and actually still stay in touch with each other all the time. And, uh, and Steven Tyler, uh, you know, met me at Willis's one morning and, and asked if his band could open shows for me. And I said, I don't know, what's the name of your band? And he said, Errol Smith. And I said, yeah, I've heard you guys are supposed to be pretty good, so I put them on a couple of shows. Yeah, and they were opening yeah, for yeah. you, right? So, <laughs> Yeah, just some colleges. You know, I was in a really big college band at one point, uh, probably the biggest college band in New England for a while, uh, which which is why I'm still selling tickets, because 90-year-old people are coming out to see me play. But anyway, um, yeah, so we, so all of us go back, you know, that far, you know, and the Jay Giles band and us were, were very, very friendly. And and even when the cars moved, you know, started in Boston, I was pretty friendly with uh, Ben o- Ben o- Ben Orrin, Rick Ocasek, and so um, so we all still stay in touch. But it, but it was funny because there was a group of about seven of us. You know, one night we'd hang at Bonnie's apartment, and the next night we'd hang at my house, and the next night at John Pusatz's. And every one of us in that little group ended up having a career. So I I, I always thought that was pretty amazing. Yeah. And, and so tell me a little bit about the, the music scene in Detroit and kind of getting growing up there. Like, uh, how did that impact you? And, and um, what were what were what was the scene like back then? Well, it impacted me greatly because once once I heard blues, uh, 
you know, I joined the drug band, which was uh, we that played uh, you know rural blues and ragtime music. And um, but I started. Detroit had a really healthy blues scene back then. There were five or six clubs that booked, you know, a lot of bands. And, and because Chicago and Detroit are only like three and a half, four hours apart or whatever, there'd be a lot of bands from Chicago that, that would play there. And it wouldn't be uncommon to have Muddy Waters play in one place one night. John Lee Hooker, of course, he lived in Detroit then, playing somewhere else. And maybe Buddy and Junior at another place or James Cotton. So, so it was a really, you know, for a, a young kid who got bit by the blues, there there was tons of places and go see like, you know, the, the best, the best people who were playing the stuff. And in those days, you know, you know, you could just walk into Muddy's restroom and start talking. You know, you didn't care. Nobody, nobody cared. I mean, now when when I tour with Buddy Guy, they expect me to call him Mister Guy and. And I'm not going to call him Mr. Guy. I'm yeah. telling you that. You know, that I've known him since I was 17. And, and we used to back him up when he came to uh, to Boston so he wouldn't have to bring his band. But anyway, the Detroit scene back then was was really great. A lot of a lot of places to see blues. And, you know, some of these guys like Cotton and Junior uh, actually spent time with me. And, uh, you know, to this day, James Cotton calls me son and I call him dad. Uh-huh. And, um and yeah, when when I call uh, call him up in Austin, his his, uh, his wife's manager says, "Oh yeah, hey, your dad wants to say hello." So, but but you know, in other words, the scene was not only vibrant with with a lot of great players, but it was also a different a different period where you could actually, you know, end up meeting these guys and spending time with them and, and being mentored by them and. John Lee Hooker, you would know, you know, as a guitar player, he, he wasn't really a musical mentor, but he kind of mentored me in terms of, uh, you know, uh, how to be a stylist, how to, how to, uh, you know, how to like, uh, he taught me how to listen because when you play with John Lee, you never knew where he was going. <laughs> you know, yeah. Thank God he only, thank God he only played three or four chords. You know, when 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 I when I later on in life when I sat there with Honey Boy Edwards, you know, you never knew where he was going either. But it was, like, he, he wouldn't keep it in a one four five progression. So, but anyway, so so Hooker kind of taught me how to keep my ears open and listen to what the other guys in the band were playing and that kind of thing. But, but it was a great time back then. And like I say, everyone was so accessible. I think that's the word I'm looking for is accessible. Yeah, that's. I mean, that's really cool. And you talk about being a young guy and uh, growing up on on the blues. I mean, I, if I have to think back, I think probably my first uh, interaction with the blues was through the Blues Brothers, but not. I mean, I, I'm a little bit younger than you, but uh, but not the Blues Brothers original, like the Blues Brothers 2000. <laughs> and uh, you you got to play with uh, the Blues Brothers, and you kind of had this history there. Tell me a little bit about that. Well, I had a, a, a band that was the world's longest band name. It was uh, it was with uh, James Taylor's older brother Alex, who, who was like the uh, the patriarch of the of the of the young part of the family. Of course, uh, you know the, the parents were, were were pretty strong parents, uh, Isaac and Trudy. But um, so I had a band with Alex Taylor, and it was called James Montgomery, Alex Taylor, and the East Coast Punk Busters. And it was like, who are you going to call Funk Busters, right? And then, yeah. uh, and then the model of the band was, I ain't afraid of no funk. 
So we had five singers and all this, and Danny came down, uh, Aykroyd came down, uh, and in true Dan Aykroyd style, uh, we were playing on the cage and you know, on the venue, but rather than like fly over on an airline or, 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 or take the ferry, uh, he showed up in the helicopter and, and uh, yeah. <laughs> put the lights on with his lights on, and we, we had dinner together. And, all during dinner, he said, well, you know, fellows, I, uh, I'm really not going to sit in tonight. I just really, I'm, I'm there to listen. And, and then by the end of the night, I probably got about 10 pictures of Aykroyd playing with some <laughs> yeah. so uh So then we did a tour up in Canada with the Funk Busters, and, and Dan Aykroyd and uh, Paul Schaefer joined that band. And uh, we went up and did a Canadian tour, which culminated in a surprise party for Danny's 30th birthday. I think it was his 30th. I couldn't have been his 25th yet. He was 25th or 30th, so you have to get out of calendar. But anyway, that was a big wild party with Bill Murray and all the Blues Brothers and, and everybody. And it was at uh, Dan Aykroyd's parents' farm up in uh, up in Kingston, Ontario. So, so since then, um, me and Alex went out with Barbara Holiday, who was a great singer, and uh, we went out and, as part of the Blues Brothers Review and opened up some hard rock cafes back in those days, because that was before Danny had the uh, House of Blues, he, he and Isaac T. Ray had the, uh, had the, uh, the hard rock cafes. And so since then, occasionally, you know, and, uh, um, and I do some work with Belushi independently, where, where he helps me out with some charities, and, and through the goodness of his heart, I mean, he, he played for next to nothing to come up, come out and help raise money for us out here for healthcare for musicians. But anyway, so now what happens is if the Blues Brothers come east of the Mississippi, either don't don't give me a call or I'll give them a call, and I'm able to kind of plug in for a couple of days here and there and and actually be a Blues Brother for for a, a brief period of time here and there. But they're great guys to hang out with and just. Um, you couldn't ask for nicer people, and, and Dan Aykroyd has to be one of the nicest people in, in all the show business. So yeah. it's, it's always a lot of fun, and Jim is so gracious, so we have a ball. Yeah, yeah, that's really cool to be some part of something that's kind of so big and notorious like that, you know, that'll that live on, you know, past... Uh, well, you know, Danny's 50th birthday party was at Mohegan Sun, and, like, everybody was at that one, you know, the Chubby Chase and, uh, and, uh, and um, uh, Martin Shore and... Bill Murray, a couple of supermodels, you know, Cindy Crawford and Eddie Panziander was there, and Pamela Anderson was supposed to jump out of the cake in front of the band. Oh, yeah? But, but, and, and the cake was right in front of the, where the lead singers are with me, and uh, but somehow or another her flight got screwed up, or I don't know, maybe she was hanging out with Ted Rock that day, I don't know. But, but anyway, the only disappointing part of that stuff is party with the Pamela Anderson did not jump out of the cake. The cake just stood there, huh? <laughs> You're like, we're waiting. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But anyway, so so it's, it's just a really fun thing, and in both cases, he was totally surprised. Yeah, and you mentioned charity. You're you're the president of the Real Blues Fest charity. Uh, why don't you tell me a little bit about that? Well, we just, uh, at the time that we started the Real Blues Fest, I was president of the New England Blues Society, and we had two or three things that we did, we educating people to blues, uh, putting out a publication, um, you know, planning events and trying to support blues in schools. And also for me, um, it, it was important to put together a health program for blues musicians. Um, so back then, 
I, we got a, a show for the Woodfall Film Festival, and at the end of the show, the Studio Masters, who's the head of the Woodfall Film Festival, we started talking about wouldn't it be a great idea to combine uh, a charity where we showed, you know, blues documentaries or movies that, uh, you know, that were blues-oriented, like that tremendous film, Genghis Blues, with... with um, uh, well, if you look at the guy's name, he had a tremendous blues singer who eventually learned how to do tubal and, uh, throat singing, you know, but, um, so anyway, um, uh, we, we, you know, so we combined and, and, uh, what I did is, uh, you know, it's kind of an umbrella 501c3, and then we gave money both to the Woodsville Film Festival and to a program that I set up where we were able to provide free healthcare, ongoing healthcare for blues musicians in New England. And we actually saved three lives with that program, so we, we were pretty proud of it. That's awesome. I mean, that's that's really great to hear, and we're doing good things like that. That's that's really cool. Yeah, and over the years, I mean, you know, when we put on these shows, the, the list of people who play the shows include Johnny Winter, Delbert McClinton, uh, Dickie Betts, Dr. John, Coco Taylor, Honey Boy Edwards, Lost Lobos, um, Jim Belushi, James Cotton, uh, Robert Cray, the fabulous Thunderbirds. I mean, you know, we're, we're putting on some pretty good shows. Yeah, I'd, I'd say so. And Huey Lewis, actually. We, we had Huey Lewis. Uh, we did a five-camera shoot uh, on James Cotton, and, we, and, and in the same band, we, we, we loaded up with harmonica players. We had James Cotton, Huey Lewis, me, uh, Kim Wilson from the Thunderbirds, and Paul Osher. And that band also had Jay Giles on guitar, the Uptown Horns. We had the drummer from the Dropkick Murphys in it. Yeah, uh, yeah. We had Grace, we had Grace Kelly in that band, and we also had uh, Barry Guzrow, the former lead guitar player of the group Boston, uh, in that band too. So that you know, we, we've done some pretty amazing shows uh, to raise money out here. Yeah. Now earlier you you'd mentioned uh, being in the Johnny Winters band. Um, obviously, we, I mean, we lost Johnny um, pretty recently. I mean, how how has that impact on you? And and I mean, kind of tying in, you know, losing really influential people that really make an impact in music as a whole, like BB King that you worked with. Also, I mean, how do you how do you cope with that? Yeah, you know, um, Johnny and I know Johnny. I think the first time I probably played with Johnny was 30 years ago or something like that. And I, and I was the opening band for uh, for the Frankenstein tour with Edgar Winter and Ricky Erringer. <laughs> I opened that tour. You know, I was only three, though. That's, uh, you know, because I'm not that old now. But but anyway, so uh, I had known the Winter Brothers for a long time. And every once in a while, um, we would come close to working together, uh, me with Johnny, because... He didn't really, at that point, he, he wasn't sure he wanted to work with another guitar player, but, but he would work with a harmonica player because, because you know, Muddy always had a harmonica player. And actually, when um, Johnny Winter did that record for Muddy Waters Hard Again and toured with James Cotton and Muddy Waters and, um, and, um, and Johnny Winter, I opened up some shows on that tour, too. So I, so I, I gone back a long way with Johnny. And, you know, Johnny was in pretty bad shape when I joined the band, and they wanted somebody to kind of, you know, look a little more energetic up there and, and, and kind of distract from uh, Johnny's ill health, you know. Yeah. Um, 
But as it turned out, and if you had Paul Nelson on the show, I'm sure you, you heard the story. That it, and, 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 you know, I, I can tell the story now because it's, it's, it's been in a movie and it's been on, in, in a book and everything. But uh, Johnny Spanish um, kind of kept him on prescription drugs um, and, and really stole from him and, and you know, really, uh, uh, you know, didn't pay him near as much money as he, as he was making and all that stuff. So when I joined the band... Um, you know, Johnny turned out to be, you know, I thought I knew the guy, but once you spend a lot of time with him, I think he was the most unique person I've met in show business. And, and you know, and I, I, I spent New Year's Eve with McFaggle one time, and I spent a few days with George Harrison and stuff. But, but Johnny was just such an interesting, one-of-a-kind guy and the most knowledgeable, the most blues-knowledgeable person I've ever met. And... You know, I'd stay up all night with him. That was one of my job responsibilities. And we would listen to uh, Blue's uh, satellite radio, and we would try and see who could guess who the artist was first. And Johnny was so hard to beat because he'd hear the first three guitars. He'd hear, and then he'd guess the artist correctly. I, you know, before. He was quick to the punch, huh? Before you even sang or before they even did anything. Um, but um, but so it was a lot. Of, it was great fun to hang out with them. Uh, I'm so proud to have been uh, in that band for five six years, whatever it was, uh, and and proud also that you know between me and Paul Nelson primarily, uh, especially you know me in the beginning to get him a new doctor. I got him the chief of staff at Tufts University Medical uh, on his case to get him off of the pills. And then um, once Johnny was healthy, they didn't really need me that much anymore. So I went on and did a documentary with Morgan Freeman and, and made a, uh, a new record. And then Paul took over and really um, made it so that Johnny's last five years were the best years of his life. And, and I always want to stress that because, you know, so many people saw Johnny when he was going through troubled times that people think that when he passed away, he was, he, he was not in good shape. But in fact... When he actually passed, he was in really good shape, and uh, and uh, and to be honest with you, I'm going to start crying here if I oh. can talk. Oh. <laughs> we can move forward. We can bring it back positive. You know, it's a good thing. I mean, I'm glad he was in good shape when when he passed because you don't want it to be rough when when you go. And and you mentioned Paul Nelson. I'm going to be talking to him tomorrow. And anything I should ask Paul specifically for anything I should talk to him about. What's that now? I'm going to be talking to Paul Nelson tomorrow. Anything specifically oh, you, you think I should bring up? Oh, yeah, yeah, no, no, Paul, Paul was, you know, Paul did so many things. Once we got Johnny to a certain point, you know, where where he was lucid again and you could carry on a conversation with him again and, and uh, you know, he was like a real person again, uh, you know, Paul really started figuring out one thing after the other and figured out all these uh, different ways to kind of, um, not alter his behavior, but but to get get him to go in the direction of a normal person, like he discovered he had OCDC or whatever that's called, and discovered he had cataracts, and some of the reasons it looked like he couldn't walk is because he just couldn't see that well. And so Paul just one step at a time, you know, just came up with all these unique ways to get Johnny to to like um, you know become more and more of his own guy and. And more independent, and and um, and it really worked uh, to the point where at the end of Johnny's life, um, 
you know, when you hung out with him, uh, you would never have known uh, that he went through that period where he was where he was so screwed up because it was uh, because of the prescription drugs they have him on. Yeah. So Paul, yeah, you should definitely ask Paul about that because he's the guy who really he was really, there. Uh, yeah. Some of the stuff he did. Someone James had to tell you a few stories about stuff that that, that, he, that he would do to get Johnny to, to do certain things. It's hilarious. <laughs> yeah, I look forward to talking to him about that. And uh, you mentioned Morgan Freeman. Uh, you know, I, I didn't really know before, uh, kind of re researching, but he had a, a blues club. And so, how did uh, how did you kind of get um, paired in with Morgan Freeman and get to kind of be work on a soundtrack for Delta Rising with him and that sort of thing? Yeah, you know what happened? Now there was a, a screenplay writer and a production company up in Boston. Uh, Christy Cashin was the writer and. She was at the time Laura Benieri and her had a um, production company called St. Air, which is still up and running and probably the most um, one of the most important production companies in the Northeast. But anyway, and uh, so she had written a movie called The uh, Delta Storm, and I was brought on board as the blues consultant, you know, because the movie was going to be based in Memphis or Clarksdale eventually. Uh, so I wrote a song for for the for the um, for the movie and was consulting with them, and then eventually I think another project came up, and Saint Eric kind of moved on to that project and put Delta Storm on hold. But Laura Bagnieri, um, um had already spent so much time in Clarksdale, and once and, you know, and for all you blues fans out there. You know, you gotta go to Clarksdale because uh, I had I had never been down there, and um, so in, anyway, I ended up um, you know being part of this documentary with Morgan Freeman and Willie Nelson and Charlie Musselwhite and Mose Allison and a lot of really tremendous uh, musicians from the Delta, you know, Super Super Chicken and um, and uh, Ruby, uh, the Queen of the Queen of Beale Street. And um, so anyway, um, and then so once we got down there and started working, and Morgan Freeman um, discovered, you know, that you know he he was shocked that I hadn't been to the Deep South. I mean, I toured there with the Allman Brothers, and I toured there with with Leonard Skinner, and I toured there with Steve Miller. But you know, these were tours that you know you pull in a you know you pull in the soundtrack, you, you play the gig, you jump in the tour bus and go. Yeah. Um, so I never really. "Quote unquote," spent time in, 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 in the Delta down there. Not a lot of time uh, to well, look around while you're on tour. Yeah. What's that? Mean? I was just saying, not a lot of time to look around while you're on tour and get get to know the sights. Yeah, and you don't. You really don't. And you know, when I was in Johnny Winters band, there was, I, you know, I've been to Barcelona, Spain. Did I see it? No, I saw nothing in Barcelona, Spain, and I stopped the venue that we worked in. But anyway, <laughs> uh, so Morgan was great, and uh, he had the band down to his place down there, and he. Turned out to be just a fantastic host, and, um, and and of course Morgan and I often talk quantum physics together, so we have a ball, and um, and so you know, and, and I've made several trips down there since then. Uh, one of Morgan's close friends and, and one-time business partner is now the mayor of, of Parkdale, so you know I've got a second home down there now, and uh, thanks to Morgan Freeman and Bill Luckett and Laura Benieri and some great people down there, so um, that was wonderful, and uh, Morgan Freeman turns out to be just um, 
a straight ahead down to earth guy. But you know, every everyone thinks that about him. But 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 when you meet him, it turns out to be true. <laughs> yeah, well, that's that's really cool. And, yeah. And uh, and so you got a a, um, a gold record for uh, double wide, which you worked on with uh, Kid Rock and Uncle Cracker, right? Yeah, and I'll tell you, talk about another guy. Talk about another great guy, Kid Rock. Is that you know when you're we we did the record, my part of the record, we did in his, in his home. Uh, he doesn't live there anymore, so I can say in Romeo, Michigan. Uh, and he was just kind of moving in, and there was some set, living room was set up. Uh, his bedroom hadn't quite been set up yet. There was a big, huge case size bed in the middle of the room with a case of Budweiser on it. Yeah. But you know, the, the, the one thing that was set up was his hat closet. The hat closet was already set up, you know. He, he had, you know, 50 to 100 hats in there. But So we recorded right in his bedroom. And the interesting thing is, is that when his kid would come, came in while we were recording and he goes, Daddy, Daddy, we have a play. I mean, a lot of really good fathers would have said, well, you know, son, you can't come in now because your father's making a record or recording. But he stopped everything and we went out and into the living room and the kids put on a play. And this happened a couple of times during the recording. And, and this album eventually went platinum. Yeah. And, and because the Follow Me was on it, that big Uncle Cracker hit. And um, but I, I noticed that Kid Rock always put his, his son first in that way, and it seemed to be relatively shy around the home. In public, he's not too shy, but around the house, he's a pretty shy guy. And uh, and another really great guy I had a ball making that record, and the lyrics that were in my headphones, you know, because it was kind of a hip hop rock thing, and, and, and but the ballad that broke the record was "Follow Me." But, you know, sometimes these hip-hop lyrics are, are lyrics that, are, well, let's face it, they're triple X rated. Yeah, yeah, a little and, different and than the blues. Lyrics, the lyrics in my headphones that I was hearing while I was making the record were just so out there. <laughs> yeah. I was going, they're going to put these lyrics on a record together, you kidding me? <laughs> uh, the lyrics that they ended up with on the record were, were, were not triple X rated, they were just X rated. Oh, oh good. <laughs> good, good. He toned it down for, uh, for you, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, but the lyrics I was recording to, man, I, I, I can steal them and use them in a song sometime, but I, I don't know, it, but, but they definitely can't get any conventional airplay. <laughs> yeah, oh no, I know. How do you how do you get but that on the radio? Right, had a ball making that record, and Kid Rock's been great. Uh, you know, since then, I hung out with him here and there. When everybody's around, I always try and hook up with him. Really, a tremendously nice guy, and the same with Uncle Cracker too. Oh, that's that's really cool. Well, so as as we wrap here, I just want to kind of ask you one more question. I want to kind of get from your perspective because you've been here through so much of it. I mean, what's what's how does blues the music change over uh, the course of uh, you know when you were there and it started to to now? Because blues is still well, around. Well, you know, still I, I think I think the, I think one of the most important things. I mean, you know, there may have been some purest blues blues purists who may have been shocked when they heard what Muddy Waters and the guys in Chicago were doing mm. and thought, how, how dare they take the sacred blues form and, and make it swing and, and you know, borrow some soul music and everything. Um, but to me, I, I just finished um, a CD that's dedicated to Paul Butterfield. It's not even mastered yet. Uh, but we took like seven of Paul's songs, and, and who I did know, 
and some of them we played pretty straight ahead like Blues with a Feeling, but others like One More Heartache and Born in Chicago, we changed the arrangements pretty drastically. Um, so yes, the difference between blues and everything, and to me it all starts with Paul Butterfield, who I think is one of one of one of the top most top five most influential people in the history of American music. When you consider what that Paul Butterfield band did, and where they took blues, and 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 how that everybody, every young guitar player in America who thought that their job as a guitar player was to play the chords that were on the Kingsman record and play the eight-bar solo that was on the Kingsman record and then finish the song and then go on and play the Beach Boys record just the way the Beach Boys played it. Everybody, every young musician who saw the Paul Butterfield band in those days said, wow, when they pointed me to do my solo, I can play. I don't have to play what's on the record. I can just play. Yeah. And and to that extent, when Maria Maldon and Jeff Maldon saw him at the um, at the Newport Folk Festival, they were going. We, she said, "I couldn't believe it. They, you know, they came on with all this energy, and they just blew our folky minds." That's how she described it. And so, and when he goes out to San Francisco, you know, you know, the Grateful Dead, Jefferson Airplane, all these jam bands, they never thought about doing this kind of stuff until they saw Paul. You know, when they saw Michael Bloomfield playing, you know, five, six choruses using Indian, you know, modes, using, you know, uh, you know, uh, Eastern Indian modal stuff. You know, that's when, when, when the, the dead in you know, those guys said, well, look at that. I mean, so Paul Butterfield, and then so he took blues and he did everything with it. He, he made it melodic, he made it jazzy, he made it big, he made it energetic. And so all the stuff where blues has gone since then, you know, John Mayo and Paul Butterfield, these, these are the guys that really, you know, took it from where, you know, took, took the handoff from Muddy and, and, and instead of trying to pound, pop pound the ball a few yards up the middle, you know, did an end sweep and uh, ran for 93 yards for a touchdown. So, so... The blues is, it has gone everywhere. It's permutated. You know, obviously it became funk, it became soul, it became hip-hop. Um, but I think Paul Butterfield was one of the guys who really um, demonstrated that you can take the blues form and explode it and, and let it do whatever, whatever it wants to do rather than what you want it to do. Let the blues do it by, by itself. That's a great thing about the blues, right? It's uh, it, it can go where you want it to go. It's uh, it's that is energy, and and it's, it, I mean, it's really awesome. And, and James, thank you for. Uh, yeah, and, I, and and to this day, I model my live show after James Totten and Paul Butterfield, and when when, when I got the best band and uh, one of, one of the one of the best blues bands in the country. There's no question about it. And when we come, when we show up, you know, we're like the old James Cotton band. We're there to kick ass and take no prisoners. You know, I do have respect for a lot of the great blues bands that really play the stuff the way it's been played for years and years and years. But, you know, when we when we show up, we want to be like James Scott and Paul Butterfield. We want to show people where blues is also done. Yeah. 
Well, come kick some ass in in the Bay Area sometime. We'd uh, definitely love to to see you, and uh, uh, yeah, I, I'd like to experience your your live show. So, <laughs> absolutely. I mean, I have such fond memories of the Bay Area. Years ago, uh, Bill Graham loved the band, and he always had this band open up for us. The lead singer had shoulder length hair and a handlebar mustache, and his name was Huey Lewis. Ah, uh, <laughs> I've known Huey since he was in Clover. And uh, and and so and because of that and because of Bill Graham, I have such fond memories of playing out there. And of course, I played out there with Johnny Winter. And I also was a member of Commander Cody and the Lost Planet Airmen, and I played out there with the Commander. But anyway, I, I know we're wrapping it up here, and, and I'm babbling away. So it's all good. Anyway, but I, I will call you when we come out there, and because uh, I, I love that area. Yeah, definitely let me know. And it's all good. And, and uh, yeah, I mean, I love all your stories, James. I mean, it's, it's, you have so much experience and so many great stories to hit from. And, and yeah, come on come on out sometime. Okay, great. Thanks, buddy. I, I super appreciate being on your show. And, and the people who, who uh, listen to the show are fortunate to have someone like you out there because, you know, some of these radio stations are run by computers, and it's always nice to talk to a person. I'm a real person here. <laughs> J- James, could you? Could well, thank you-, you very much. Sure thing. Can you do a promo for the podcast real quick? Um, What's that? Can you do a promo for the podcast? You just uh, just say. Uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Just tell me what you're saying. Yep. Yeah. So what? Uh, yeah. So I just men- mentioned your name on the podcast, right? Yeah. Yeah. You. So like, uh, I'm James Montgomery, and you're listening to Concert Pipeline, something like that. Concert P- Pipeline. Is that what it is? Yep. And see, what's your last name? Jones. Jones, like Jones, like me and Mrs. Jones? Yeah, yeah, I like that one. Steve Jones, like the Sex Pistols. What, how do you spell it? Yeah, it's Steve Jones, like Steve Jones from the Sex Pistols. Yeah, Jones, J-O-N-E-S. You, you got it. Oh, yeah, okay, yeah. Okay, hang on for a minute. So it's the concert pipeline, right? Yep. Okay, okay here we go. <laughs> Hey, this is James Montgomery, and you're listening to Steve Jones and the Concert Pipeline. This show is hot. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> I didn't expect you to bring out the harmonica. That's great. I, I'd have you do a whole song if you were really, <laughs> if I knew you had that song. No, there's always one at my desk. <laughs> oh, you have it handy. Oh, that's awesome. The difference between the harmonica and a bathroom is there's always a harmonic on my desk. Yeah, you can always have so it. Did that work out okay? That was perfect. Perfect. Yeah. Okay, good. Okay, perfect. Thank you so much, James. You have well, a... Thanks, Steve. I really appreciate it. Yeah, you have a great rest of your day, okay? Okay, you too. Thank you. Thanks. Bye. Bye-bye. Okay, so we're going to move on to uh, you know, great segment where we talk about news that's, that's in music. What, what's that called, Jens? It's called, drum roll please, Music News. Wow, what a, what a fitting name! Yeah, one one would have never thought. You know, it's it's so obvious. It's uh, you know, yeah, hard to think of. That's great. Uh, <laughs> so a couple stories, and we're going to kind of keep it short because this is uh, we've had several bands on the podcast. The first one I wanted to hit is is a band that we've been talking about a lot on the podcast and uh, jabbing at a little bit, but uh, but Guns N' Roses. Uh, I mean, really, I, I I think it would be really cool to see them live, um, and they. Um, they 
kicked off their Not In This Lifetime tour in uh, Detroit to over 40,000 fans. Um, it's the start to their summer stadium tour. They've been playing kind of smaller shows and practice uh, gigs leading up to this. And, um, and I got an email this morning with the set list to uh uh that they that they played and it's i mean it's really cool uh just a, a really cool set list they also did a bunch of covers and uh, and other things that are worth noting uh, of course they did the uh the necessary songs like welcome to the jungle and um let's see what else what else did they do of, of theirs? sweet child of mine november rain oh that would be really cool to see live uh, yeah it's awesome what um what are some of the covers Covers. Uh, they did "Live and Let Die," uh, mm. which is from Wings. Um, but I, I always like some of these songs. I always know the Guns N' Roses version of it even better right. than, than the uh, original. So than the original, yeah, yeah. I remember Axel doing a really nice version of that song. I was never really a huge fan of that song, "Live and Let Die." I think that's a, a Wings song with a soundtrack, right, in James Bond movie. Mm-hmm. Um. But uh, yeah, I mean, doesn't don't they do a um, knocking on heaven's door too, which is really good? They they did. That's Dylan exactly. Mm-hmm. Uh, but again, that's another one that I know Guns N' Roses version of that. I don't I, I don't even really know the Dylan version because the Guns N' Roses version is so notorious. It's just so, so awesome, right? Yeah. 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 So wait a minute. I thought you were not an Axl Rose fan. Let's clear that up. Yeah, no, I never said that I wasn't a fan. I just said it wasn't necessary for him to be taking over. ACDC you know I don't really have any problem with him uh, him as a musician him as a he's kind of a diva a a little bit Uh, he will show up late to shows or just not show up at all which isn't really respectful (laughs) to your fans (laughs) right and he has this history I mean but I mean he's uh, I I would see Guns N' Roses I've seen Guns N' Roses the old uh, you know version without uh, Slash and uh, Buckethead and the whole group um that that uh before they got re- uh, reunited of course and uh, and it was a good show i mean but um but yeah that's that's kind of my gripe is i, I don't think uh, the acdc needed him but i think they just needed to hang up the towel if they were going to do it but mm. but uh they want to keep playing i guess and until they go Cool. Like, so in the news, so, I mean, is is um, I mean, one of the things we were talking about in previous podcasts about you know how effective uh, he's going to be in terms of his absenteeism or tardiness or just the you know quality of his voice um, and accuracy. You know, is he yeah. is he is he knocking him dead or or what? I mean, reading this and, and granted, this article is from uh, the publicist. Uh, but it sounds like he, uh, the show went off with a great response. Um, what other songs? Uh, Raw Power by Iggy and the Stooges. Um, the Slash did a solo of Speak Softly Love, which is the love theme from The Godfather. Um, uh, Jam, which uh, was from like Pink Floyd. Uh, it's The Seeker from Who, and they close it out with Paradise City. Uh, so they had a a bit, it looks like a, almost a 20 song set or, or something along those lines and um, and uh, Guns N' Roses will be here uh, in the Bay Area uh, in uh, August um, August 9th actually so if you want to see them ATT Park that's the, the place to, to go to get your tickets um, yeah it's a great venue for them too it's a it's a pretty big it's venue a great yeah. venue for anybody yeah right yeah so um, so that's a big 
uh, the big story there. Do you have a story, Jens? No, not really. I mean, I've got a, kind of a rumor. I don't know if this is a real story or not, but um, Stephen Tyler is saying that we're going to do a farewell tour, so it might be the last tour for Aerosmith, um, which makes me sad. I've never seen them in concert, but it's one of those things I've always wanted to go do. I've seen them a couple of times. They're they're uh, they're pretty good live. I like them. I, I I saw them actually the first time. I liked them better, and then I saw their blues. While we're talking about blues, I, I saw them do a blues show, and they were supporting their Honkin' on Bobo album, and I just didn't feel like that was a good fit for them. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, let's see. It says here Stephen is about to fully make a commitment to country music with his debut debut album in the genre. We're all somebody from somewhere, which is coming out this July 15. Country music, interesting. So I guess yes. they like playing with different genres, huh? Yeah, yeah. Stephen Tyler seems to be seems to play around a bit um, with uh, with music. So yeah, I hadn't heard about that uh, um, Aerosmith farewell tour. So it'll probably be one of those like it's it'll take a year and a half at least to to do. We'll do a couple rounds like uh, Black Sabbath does, right? And. Uh, Got some music going on there? Yeah, well, no, I'm just kind of humming. Um, I mean, the article does say that Stephen didn't commit to how long the tour would last, so it might be one of these farewell tours that goes on for years and years and years. It could be. We'll, we'll get every penny out of uh, out of our fans before <laughs> yeah. we, we go. Until so. no one shows up to the shows anymore. Yeah. <laughs> then it will be time to hang up that hat. Yeah. We'll <clears> do <throat> one more story here and then wind it on out. Um, Led Zeppelin won the Stairway to Heaven trial. Uh, if you're not in the know, yes, that, yeah, that's right. they were uh, they were uh, accused of infringement in a trial over the creation of their signature 1971 song "Stairway to Heaven." Uh, a jury in Los Angeles federal court sided Thursday with the UK band in a 2014 suit brought by Randy California's estate and members of Spirit by trustee Michael Skidmore over claims that the acoustic introduction to Stairway was lifted from their 1968 instrumental Taurus. Uh, Led Zeppelin have this to say we are grateful for the jury's consensus uh, service and pleased that it is ruled in our favor putting uh, to rest the questions about the origins of Stairway to Heaven and confirming what we've known for 45 years says Jimmy Page and Robert Plant we appreciate our fan support and look forward to putting this legal matter behind us uh, so they had to deny that um, exposure to Taurus while explaining the creation of Stairway at uh, Headley Garage so Wow. Um, well, I'm glad we got that clarified. Yeah. <laughs> That's like unnecessary it's, drama, right? That could, I mean, it's one of those that could be really bad, especially when with music that dates back so far. It's like uh, that Men at Work song, uh, Land, Land Down Under with Kookaburra, and they had to pay millions and millions and millions of dollars to for that because uh, they uh, stole it from Kookaburra. Yeah. That Kookaburra song, <laughs> so... Uh, yeah. Crazy. Yeah. I know you hope you hope that the classics, you know, aren't you don't have that kind of history of reality and it's just somebody trying to make money or whatever. Exactly. Well well let's talk about who we have coming up on the, the podcast in coming weeks. Um and uh and the layout for, for this is you know still up in the air, but right now, uh in the coming weeks Let's start with uh, a big one. We have we're gonna have Foreigner on the podcast. Yeah Foreigner Yes, uh, for foreigners gonna play right in my backyard here. Yeah, you'll be cooking up some burgers for them on the grill, and they'll uh, they'll be in the backyard. You'll you'll load it up with people and uh, uh, and have a great show, right? Yeah, yeah. The the um, 
the shows that come to my backyard, quote unquote, literally, I can hear them from from my backyard. Yes, yes. Um, as if they were literally just two blocks away. Yeah. So they're yeah Fourth of July. Uh, they're playing at the uh, Marin Fair and. Um, and so check them out there. They're also later in the year have an uh, acoustic tour uh, that's that's really cool. I mean, their acoustic stuff is really uh, excellent also. So that's uh, worth checking out. Um, nice. We're going to have to look out for um, maybe a local show um, for their acoustic stuff. Yes. And um, you said they have a lot of um, greatest hits and stuff, right? They recently came out with a, a, an acoustic version of that? Or? Yeah, they, uh, they've had uh, acoustic versions of their hits that come out, and, and they just take a d- different approach with, with the songs than you're used to. I mean, it's the same song you're used to. You uh, you can sing along to it, but it's the stripped down and kind of has more power to it with, from the acoustic side also. So um, you can check that out. Um, also on the podcast, we're going to have uh, Lance Lopez and uh, and Paul Nelson. Uh, again, a couple of blues artists that uh, that I spoke to, and uh, and we'll be bringing that to you uh, really soon. So more to come in the uh, coming weeks, and uh, the only place to get that Jens is Concert Pipeline, right? It's exclusive. It is. So uh, so for Concert Pipeline, we're gonna we're gonna play us out with one more song here from uh, Max Sabbath's set at the Boardwalk in Orangevale. Um, that song is uh, is called. Uh, it uh, feels like the first time. Hit it. <laughs> wow. Uh, feels like the very I, first time. I, I think it's actually Jens's cover band that's going to be playing in his backyard. <laughs> this is the acapella version, man. Uh-huh. Acoustic. Yeah. It's uh, Chicken for the Slaves from, from Max Sabbath. For Concert Pipeline, that's Jens Schiphol. And that is Stephen Jones. We will catch you next time. I don't know what that means to play us out. What does that mean? To end the show? Yeah. Yeah. All right, go, go. In five, four, three. That's tomorrow, and that is it. Okay. In five, four, three. is about nuggets. This one looks like a bunny rabbit. Remember that one? It's called chicken for the slaves.